Hey, welcome to today's Plant Yourself podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Let's get in the mood with a little music. So I'm going to be brief because I really want to get you to listen to today's interview with Shay Seaborn. Shay Seaborn is a CPTSD, which stands for a survivor of complex post-traumatic stress disorder. She is an activist, an advocate, an educator for healing from trauma, healing from abuse. She has a horrific story of childhood abuse, uh, abuse as a teen, and a very difficult and troubled adulthood until she began to explore healing modalities that brought her back to herself. And we talk about this and we talk about the nature of trauma and some of the theories and her own experiences with being traumatized and trying to find healing from the psychiatric profession, which instead uh, incarcerated her essentially as for as long as insurance would pay and her path to reconnecting with herself. And then we talk about you and me and all of us and the traumas that are being re-triggered through this pandemic, through the lockdowns, through the quarantines, through the fear, through the uncertainty, through the financial stresses. What she says is that we are being re-triggered in old traumas. And so, of course, this is a terrible thing as we're, as we're acting them out unknowingly and inflicting them on ourselves and on others. But it's also an opportunity to explore them, to bring them to the light and to begin to heal them. So the second half of our conversation is really uh, Shay guiding us towards our own healing of trauma. Before we get there, just one quick announcement that pandemic pricing is still in effect for my laser coaching program, which is a year of unlimited one-on-one -on -one 15 minute sessions. And it's designed to help you take action continuously and consistently to get into the best health and best shape of your life. If you'd like to find out more, including how you can sign up for as low as $83 a month, check out plantyourself.com slash laser. All right, let's get to today's conversation. Without further ado, Shay Seaborn, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you so much. So um, we're going to be talking about what I think the, the phrase you use that I love so much is uh, how to stay off the trauma train. Uh, especially during during this time when things are so difficult for so many people. But let's I want to begin since this is one of the first uh, Zoom ones I've done. It says your name and then it says CPTSD. And so I wonder if you could begin by telling us what CPTSD is an abbreviation for. It stands for complex PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, which is what I've had since I was a little kid. Um, and recently I decided to add it to the end of my creds because I've earned my PhD in it through um, living this way and also uh, learning how to recover from it, intensive study on my own, because it's really hard to get help from the system for this kind of a neurological illness. Mm. And, so, and so you refer to it as a, as a neurological illness. Um, I, I imagine that was already thinking of it that way is already a little bit part of the healing because um, I think a lot of people who experience it just experience it as I'm crazy. Yes, actually, I meant to say neurological injury, uh, which, you know, it, it does. It mm. absolves us of the, of the uh, guilt, you know, or the, the stigma that, you know, we're just crazy or 
you know, all the things, oh, I'm just not willing to let it go or put it in the past or I'm not trying hard enough or praying the right words to the right God or the right church on the right day. Um, <laughs> you know, all character flaws, right? All, all putting the, the uh, onus for my condition on me when it's actually on the environment in which I, you know, grew up, my body and brain uh, and spirit adapted to the um, deeply toxic um, home environment. Um, and my life has been directed by it to this day. Um, and it's led me to become a trauma awareness activist and artist, something I never imagined I would be. I just wanted to be a deckhand. And here I am advocating for trauma awareness and, um, and uh, developmental trauma um, resolution for so many people that have and don't even know it. Mm. Can, can we, and you know, titrate this as you, as you will. I, I know in talking to you previously, you're, you're a pretty open book, but I don't want to, uh, you know, offend any boundaries, but what can you share about your, your, the injury? And the, and the, the original, I'm so sorry the for that. I have everything off and my computer is calling things anyway. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. So, sometimes it's very hard to get your computer to stop trying to get your attention. Well, the thing is, I turned my phone off so it wouldn't ring. So it's not ringing, but when the call came in, it came in through the computer instead, which I can't. Right, right. <laughs> and as, as, as I um, subtly make sure my phone is on the off position, too. <laughs> so no harm, no foul. <laughs> Let's see, where were we? You have to get me back on the track here. Right. I was asking you what you were willing to share about your... Um, Injury, your tr neurological injury, that what, what happened? And uh, well, I'll keep it in really general terms. Um, uh, I can say that I've been through a lot of things that would um, make a lot of people sick if they knew the details. Um, mm. uh, through um, early childhood, um, you know, in the, in the parental home, and uh, later I was uh, groomed for um, further abuse by an acquaintance for about a year. So um, I've experienced, before I was 16, I experienced uh, uh, incest, rape multiple times, uh, torture, um, suffocation, things like that. Uh, mm -hmm. So really awful, awful stuff. My, I'm, I'm, my ACE score is a nine. Um, I'm pretty much um, a very atypical case. Most people haven't been through the kinds of things I've been through. Thank goodness. Uh -huh. If I can heal, other people can heal too. Right. Sorry to interrupt. AA stands for Adverse Childhood Events? Experiences. Experiences. Mm -hmm. And like 10 is the maximum, right? Or Yes, on the, on the typical scale that's used now. Mm -hmm. So you're nine, nine out of 10. Right. And mm -hmm. the, that, that's from the, a study, that, a landmark study that most doctors don't know about. Um, I've had to educate my caregivers about it. Um, it's um, a multi- um, uh, multi-decade study of, uh, that started with like 17,000 participants um, uh, from, by Kaiser in partnership with, mm, I forget, some government agencies. Um, and they found that uh, people who had experienced four or more adverse childhood experiences, types of adverse experiences, um, uh, they had a strong uh, likelihood of all sorts of social problems like incarceration, problems with school, with authority, with jobs. Um, they tend to um, end up on the streets, in jail, or dead. Um, and, uh, or, or addicted. Right. And then, uh, so then followed by the, 
the onset of chronic disease at midlife and uh, early death is the end. That's the traditional, the, the typical trajectory for someone with an ACE score of four or more. Mm -hmm. um, and the more, obviously, you know, the more adverse types of experiences, the harder it is to navigate through life with that kind of a trajectory. Right. And this might be getting off topic a little bit, but I'm curious if there's research that you're aware of or you can speak to physiological effects like chronic disease, autoimmune disease. Is there, is there anything known about that as well? Yeah, the ACE study shows that correlation very strongly. Um, I can't remember all the numbers because PTSD, but um, uh, the higher the ACE score a person has, especially if it's unresolved, which most of it is because we don't know we have it. We think just, you know, life sucks and that's the way it is. Um, the, um, I'm sorry, I lost the track again. I was asking about the physiological symptoms. Oh, yes, thank you. Um, yeah, a very much higher incidence of uh, chronic disease like diabetes, heart disease, um, fibromyalgia, um, all sorts of chronic disease. In fact, most of the chronic diseases can uh, are related to um, childhood adverse experiences. Gotcha. So um, I'm imagining that someone's listening to this at this point saying, wow, you know, I never went through what Shay went through. Yeah, I had some tough times, but I certainly wasn't capital T traumatized. But I know one, one of the things that you do in terms of awareness is make people, help people realize when they have been traumatized, even if it doesn't look as dramatic and horrific as what you've described. Yeah, pretty much everybody has been traumatized at some point in their life. Um, it's just, it's part of life. And the, the problem is when we can't resolve, when we can't complete the trauma release cycle, that's when we get stuck in post-traumatic stress disorder, um, or in my case, complex, which means, you know, many types. Um, so the, the good news is we usually recover from a traumatic event, say a car accident, um, people around you support you and say, oh, that's terrible. And the insurance company takes care of things and you get the medical care that you need and people send you cards and flowers and hug you. And after a while you feel better and maybe you kind of uh, stop for a second at that intersection where it happened. You know, there's a little upset there, but your life pretty much goes back to normal and you don't really think about the event anymore. That's, that's a typical, um, mm. you know, that's what we're made for. It's when, when we can't respond um, to complete the trauma cycle that it gets stuck inside of us. Mm -hmm. so so friends, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so, 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 but in terms of like the epidemic of, of mm -hmm. trauma and, and unresolved trauma, do you think it's something to do with like our culture doesn't mm -hmm. have the supports anymore? Like it's hard for me to believe in a tribal village that the things that you described in your home could have would have gone on un, unaltered that there would have been some sort of intervention and that when people undergo sort of normal traumas that there are rituals and ceremony and communal support to to bring it back into balance because if if, I, if you're part of my tribal community and you're messed up then my community is messed up and i'm messed up so i have a vested interest in in helping you resolve Right. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of it. Um, uh, the, the, that's actually the nature of trauma is, is uh, disconnection. It, um, it happens when, we, when our inner and outer resources 
are not enough to match what's happening to us at that moment. So um, uh, we um, either fight, freeze, or, um, or run, or freeze, or collapse. Um, and if we can fight, or if we can run, that completes the, the trauma cycle that gets that energy out. And we've saved ourselves, and we've come to a place where we feel safe. Just like the, when the zebra gets away from the lion and shakes itself off. And then it goes back to grazing like nothing, nothing happened because mm. it's completed that trauma release cycle. But when, say, when a child is abused by a parent, when a parent is the source of that child's terror, that child can't escape that. There is no escape. And so that resolution can never happen, especially if the abuse happens again and again and again. There's no chance for recovery. So it just piles up inside that organism. And uh, modern mainstream psychology seems to consider uh, developmental trauma and PTSD a brain problem. You know, the, the most common treatment is with um, medications for, you know, chemical imbalances in the brain. Um, but trauma experts often say that trauma is actually a somatic experience. As soon as our red alert system goes up, all kinds of things are happening in our body. Uh, we're getting flooded with hormones. Our muscles are getting glucose to, to run or, or fight. And um, stress chemicals are going through us. And um, we lose uh, connection to the part of our brain that helps us connect with people and make rational decisions because everything's going into survival mode. And that's a really wonderful thing when your life is really in danger, but when it's a chronic state, it's really bad for the organism. It, it, it harms us from the inside. Mm. So what was your chronic state, you know, from the age of 16 on? It so sounds like you got out of the situation <laughs> environmentally at the age of 16. Um, no, it just, I got out of the, uh, a particular type of abusive environment, but then back into my, my parental home, which was oh. actually even more dangerous for me, uh, uh -huh. psychologically, physically safer, but psychologically not. That's when I became suicidal because, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, um, oh, come on, what's her name? Elizabeth Smart. No, no. Uh, she was uh, uh, um, 15 years old when she was abducted by a crazy couple and she was um, she was kept uh, as a slave um, for f 10 months. And then she managed to get away and she came back to her family who you know welcomed her uh, with love and kindness and compassion and got her therapy and medical care. And, you know, they tracked down these culprits and they put them in jail and and um, she got so much support from her community and validation that this was a horrible thing. Well, that's kind of what I went through, except without all the family support. I came mm. back to a, to a father who let me know that whatever happened had been my fault and I just needed to shut up and suck up. Mm. So that was probably <laughs> the most brutal thing that ever happened to me, even more than um, the suffocation mm -hmm. torture itself. Right. So, so that when we don't feel validated in, in, in someone just telling us, yeah, this was horrible, then what happens? Then we, we start 
doubting. We start thinking we, it was our fault. Like, what did, what did you, what did your father's words uh, cement in you? Or, or um, yeah, the shame. Yeah, that it that it was my fault that you know somehow I had chosen this this arrangement. Um, you know, out of poor decision making. When in actuality, you know, my early childhood had uh, primed me, had had groomed me for this person to do these things to me, um, it, and it it saddled me with with basically his shame. You know, even mm -hmm. if he hadn't been guilty of what he'd been guilty of. Uh, at that point, it was his shame that prevented him from getting me the mental health care that I needed and deserved at that point. And I had to take it on because my, you know, life depended on this person. Mm. Now, in, in my experience, I don't know that many people who w wouldn't get triggered by your story. So even, even if they were, even if they were a stranger, and, you, you know, they hadn't felt somehow shame for, like, how they had primed you. Just to hear that, like, for, it's really difficult for me to hear you describe, even in the, you know, the gentlest, vaguest generalities of, of what you went through without putting any pictures in my head. Um, it's very hard for me to not want to shut you up, honestly. <laughs> right? Because I, I don't want to feel this way. And, yeah. <clears throat> And I imagine there's very few people who are emotionally well resourced themselves to be able to give you the validation that you desperately need. That is so true. And unfortunately, that even goes for um, people, in, you know, professionals in the psychology field. <laughs> I've oh. had a hard time finding people who can, uh, you know, who, who are, who understand trauma enough to to um, separate themselves from from their response, and and what you bring up is really important. Um, I'm a really big fan of uh, Dr. Daniel J. Siegel, who uh, talks about interpersonal neurobiology, and uh, he talks about um, burnout, empathy burnout, and he says that's not empathy burnout; that's bad boundaries. Mm. People need to understand that you're over there with your feelings, and I'm over here. And when I feel something in response to you, that's my empathy. It's not your distress. That's my empathy. And that's the part of me that connects with you neurologically and wants to respond to, to do something to help alleviate your pain. Mm. And when we can keep that separation between us with that boundary, we don't get the burnout and it's so much easier to connect that way. Hmm. But I imagine it's, it's maybe even specifically hard for mental health professionals, because on the one hand, when they see your pain, it can easily be an indictment of my inability to help you, right? Like, I can feel myself getting really frustrated sometimes as I'm coaching someone when they're not getting it. And I can, when I check in and take a deep breath, the frustration is my own ego is feeling attacked because mm -hmm. I'm not the world's best effing coach. <laughs> um, I imagine you're right because in in our culture the the um, doctor patient relationship is usually defined by the doctor as I'm the one who's well and can heal you and you're the one who's sick and needs to be healed and that right there puts such a separation between us um, and, and in the work I've been doing uh, through years of working different modalities with different therapists I've learned that every relationship is mutual in some way. There's a, always a back and forth, even when it's, you know, 
uh, the, the surgeon and the patients, you know, somebody that this, the surgeon is going to do this thing to, and they barely know the person, but there is some neurobiology going on between them, and the surgeon comes away with something as well. It's not just the patient. And the same goes for a positive um, therapeutic relationship. Mm. And I see, you know, also, if, if your trauma triggers my own unacknowledged, unresolved traumas, whether they be capital T or small t, whether they be commission or omission, and I have to think, and I have to think of myself as the well person, then I become even more agitated. <laughs> and I, you know, like you, I, I, th- I was listening to uh, Gabor Mate give a talk about uh, what he called vicarious trauma. And he says, it's not vicarious trauma, it's your trauma that your patient or your client has triggered in you. Yes, that's really common, uh, and and it's very common to not even know what the source of that is. Just like you said, you feel this discomfort, um, and not to have, to be able to define it, especially if you haven't been able to to do any of your trauma work. And that's one of the things that this pandemic is doing for people, uh, when basically the whole world is in a pre-traumatic state. Um, it's going to set off all sorts of unresolved trauma in pretty much everybody uh, and they're going to have short tempers and short and short attention span and and lose things and break things and feel frustrated and tearful and and not know why they feel like they're going crazy um, and a lot of that can be unresolved trauma um, and that's why we need to be really gentle with ourselves and everybody else right now when you say the world is in a pre-traumatic state uh, what does that mean uh, well, on the on the trauma track, um, the a pandemic would be maybe the first station. Um, that's a, a chronic stress situation. But as the time goes on, and we're you know more uh, disconnected because of um, a physical distancing. I want to call it physical, not social, because uh, mm. we need the social connection. We need to figure out how to do that while we're physically distancing. Um, and, and we're having more problems with uh, uh, finances and, and not knowing when this is going to end. And there are all kinds of political things going on. All that stuff can stir up unresolved issues. Um, and we can find ourselves lashing out at the people we love the most and thinking we're going crazy. That's a really good sign that you're headed for the trauma train. And there are fortunately things that we can do. Uh, to keep ourselves off that train from going further down the track. You don't want to end up in PTSD land where I am. I can tell you it's much easier to get off the train as soon uh-huh. as possible. Um, so before, before we talk about that, I, kind of, I, I want to get a little more of your story. Um, so what, what did your CPTSD look like at, through, your, you know, through your teens and into your 20s? And what were you trying to recover from it? Uh, well, of course, we didn't have a name for it back then. Um, and I had, you know, no insurance coverage and no real access to any uh, uh, regular mental health care. So um, I read a lot of self-help books. Um, still didn't explain what was going on with me. I journaled a lot. Um, and um, I did sort of uh, self-therapy. Um mm. And, you know, read a lot of books. I, I read I'm Okay, You're Okay when I was 14. 
I've, I've had a long had a drive to, you know, improve myself. Um, so yeah, uh, early adulthood, um, was that, was that, was that the transactional analysis yes. stuff? Okay. Mm-hmm. Eric Byrne. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now I, I read that and I was fascinated by, it, um, by the idea of games. And at the same time, I felt a lot of shame. Like, he, like every page, he was like catching one of, you know, catching my cons. I wonder, I wonder if you had sort of a similar experience or was it, was it liberating? Because I didn't, I found it fascinating, but not at all liberating. I felt like I was a criminal. Wow. Well, being that I, I read that two games people play when I was 14 also. Um, and I guess I didn't have a sense of myself as, you know, having formulated any games mm. yet, but I could see how my relationship with my mother was heading in that direction. And I, and it helped me understand her. She's mentally ill. Um, it helped me understand, you know, her a lot better, which helped me navigate with her better. Um, but I don't think I had shame about it at that point because the, for me, the book seemed to normalize it. Well, this is what people do. Mm. And for me, having the awareness was a real gift. Uh-huh. Right. Okay. Yeah, I can see that from, from being clearly victimized, that it, it gave you a different flavor of, of the information than it gave me. I think I, 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 I felt kind of guilty about myself. <laughs> like, so I, I could see myself as the perpetrator in a lot of these games. Well, I know we all are at some point. Um, so that's understandable. Yeah, for, for me, it, it, any book like that, that could help. It kind of validated my reality. Um, mm-hmm. And the people around me weren't doing that. So it was really mm-hmm. helpful to have some, you know, something that said, oh, yeah, things aren't right here, even though mm-hmm. it wasn't nearly close, you know, to what was actually going on. Right. So and that's, that's yeah, go ahead. That probably drove my interest in psychology when I was in high school. Uh, one place we were allowed to, you know, have electives and one was psychology. Well, I hopped on that and, and that really helped me out as well and, you know, continued my personal interest in it. Um, mm. I ended up in my early 20s working for um, the Yes Educational Society, which um, uh, publishes a, uh, an alternative health kind of newspaper on the East Coast. And we had um, a lot of uh, workshops on, you know, shamanic journeying, and we had Ramdas come and talk, and Sun Bear, and all these different people um, that I was exposed to, uh, you know, in a in a close in way, and and that really influenced me as well, uh, as uh-huh. and so did um, the teachings of Don Juan. So I have this kind of weird, kind of uh, I don't know, eclectic uh, mainstream psychology, you know, hippie mix. Uh-huh. influences going on. Um, well, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, sort of Western psychology that has become so heavily cognitively biased and then brain biased as it, as it shifted into psychiatry didn't really have a model for this, but the shamanic cultures did. You know, the ancient wisdom traditions knew what people were capable of and, and, and the effects it could have. Yes, right. and, so, and those, like, they, they, the plant medicines have, have been historically a big part of that. And those are exactly the things that have been made criminal in America. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and and that's, one of, that's actually one of my pet peeves. There are substances that can help resolve my PTSD relatively quickly. Uh, 
um, like what? Psychedel psychedelic assisted psychotherapy uh, is in phase three trials with uh, substances like MDMA and psilocybin. LSD has also been used and uh, ketamine. I don't think LSD is being used mainstream anymore, but I'm, I don't know. Um, it could be. Um, so with one of these protocols um, in three months, uh, people with PTSD find tremendous relief and um, the majority of them can their symptoms are, are so abated they're no longer classified as having PTSD. I would love to do this. Well, there's one place in the country I know I could do this and it's in Denver and I can't go live in Denver for three months <laughs> to mm -hmm. do this. Um, and uh, it's, it's all stuff that's been around for a long time and the studies are, are very um, supportive. Uh, but even if and when it's legalized, who's going to have access to the specific protocol? You know, it's a very specialized kind of medicine. Well, I'm going to um, be really bold here and reveal that I've been doing this on my own for over a year. Um, and it's pretty much the same thing I was doing uh, in my little apartment when I was 19. I do um, cannabis-assisted self-directed therapy. And uh, cannabis can be used as a um, psychedelic agent, and that's how I use it. Um, it reduces my anxiety and um, allows me to connect with the original abuse scene without being overwhelmed and thereby give myself the compassionate witnessing that, as you said, I so desperately need and resolve this much of my trauma each time I do one of these sessions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a while back I had a couple on the podcast who run an ibogaine retreat in Costa Rica. And they were talking about not just you know, the plant's pharmacology, but the plant's consciousness and intelligence and spirit. Mm. Um, that sounds and, interesting. I don't know anything about that. Yeah, well, just, just the idea that when you, you know, like you talked about coming back from trauma and, and having the, the difference that community support could make to, for Elizabeth Smart, mm -hmm. well, there's a more than human community, right? And, and since, yeah. since humans tend to be so bad at providing this kind of support, that, yes. <laughs> that, that plants and, you know, animals like dogs and cats and dolphins and elephants and many others seem to, to kind of have the knack of being able to hold us without themselves cracking in any way. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point. Uh, animals have been uh, definitely uh, a help for me, especially in the last few months. I've been able to spend some time with horses and uh, yeah, the animals can co-regulate with us as well. In fact, really interesting. There's a dog in the neighborhood, a, a Great Pyrenees, um, and I got to know her uh, early, uh, late last year and early this year. And then I had... Uh, What's major, her name? Um, her name is Lady. Lady. And, yeah. And um, she's obviously a rescue. Um, and um, we got to be friends. Then I had uh, major surgery. And... Um, the trauma of that so janked up my nervous system that lady wouldn't come near me for months afterward. Mm. She could read my nervous system. I felt really like, like I was going to die for five weeks. I could barely just like make myself do the things I had to do every day. And I just felt, you know, totally traumatized. And every time lady would see me, she would like look at me like she wanted to come and then she'd back away. 
hmm. uh, until uh, about the three month mark. So just a few weeks mm-hmm. ago, and then she could approach me again. So, so in some ways, distressing, but in some ways, a really uh, good model of like having your own authentic boundaries. Yes. Dogs are really good at that. My therapist dog does the same thing. She really likes me. Uh, and of course, this is, you know, pre-COVID. Um, and and she, she will sit in my lap and she doesn't sit in anybody else's lap. But if I go in there really janked up, she'll stay on the other side of the room. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, so as you are into your 20s and you know, early adulthood, like what, what was the CPTSD like what was the experience of it what did you what did it cost you uh well it interfered with every single relationship i had um i uh tended to be in you know dysfunctional relationships where uh you know i was subconsciously uh recreating that with you know either of my parents you know trying to win uh the affection and attention and approval of somebody who wasn't capable of doing that um uh, I moved around a lot. Uh, I went to live on the Piscataway Indians land for a summer and then their farm for another summer. Uh, I lived in, spent some time living in a tent, um, had, you know, jobs here and there, n- never had a career, um, went in and out of s- college. I think I spent about four years getting one year of college credits. Um uh-huh. Yeah, I, I really struggled and uh, with you know with myself, with relationships, with employment, with money, you know, pretty much everything. Life was just a really difficult struggle. And what what was the story you told yourself at that at that point without having the the knowledge that you've accrued about trauma and recovery? Well, I I, I had memory of you know the the abuse that. It, happened in my teen years. So I knew that had a lot to do with what was wrong with me. Uh, But I couldn't understand why I cried every time I talked about it, because everybody acted like, oh, that was your boyfriend. Um, And so that's what I thought it was. (laughs) And, And the relationship between me and my slave master was so much like that uh, between me and my father that there wasn't a whole lot of difference. It felt normal to me. I mm. thought this is just what life is. Life is a horrible struggle. And when you die, it's a relief. And mm. sometimes I still feel that way. <laughs> uh huh. Mm. So when you were like, um, you know, going from place to place, job to job, course to course, did, did you feel like untrustworthy to yourself? Like, I don't know. I'm not exactly sure how to say it, but I know that there are times when I don't feel trustworthy to myself, and so therefore I don't trust my impressions of anybody else, if that? You know, I think that was a big part of it, Um, you know, subconsciously. uh, Yeah, I couldn't trust myself because I'd been taught, you know, through my whole uh, life that all the bad things that had happened to me were my fault and that I deserved them. You know, I I was inherently flawed and, and could never measure up. Uh, and yeah, that that led me to be unable to uh, rely on myself in some ways uh, that I can do now. Um, but also, it disabled me. It, it it wasn't you know all all choice. A lot of it was just being disabled. You know, when your when your prefrontal cortex uh, is walled off from trauma 
because of trauma, you can't really make good decisions. Mm -hmm. Because the prefrontal cortex is not getting sort of the afferent information from the body, right? The, 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 the heart brain and the gut brain. And I'm not right. speaking, I'm not speaking woo woo for metaphorically, but right. Yeah. Neurologically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We know we have three brains, head, gut, and heart. So, um, yeah, they all need to, to connect. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I had um, uh, neurofeedback several years ago. And when I went in to have my analysis read, she said, um, do you like things? Um, do you want the cold hard truth or do you like things sugar-coated? <laughs> I said, give me the hard truth. She said, well, most people have a bridge between their prefrontal cortex and the rest of your brain. You don't. You have a wall. I had no idea what that meant. Now I do. <laughs> it means that, that that part of my brain, the executive functioning part of my brain is, is not literally cut off, but it's, it's very much inaccessible because of all the trauma. And, it, and that was very liberating for me to understand the neurobiology. Uh, my brain is built differently. It's not my fault. It's, it's a response to the environment in which my brain was formed. And, and that helps me uh, start to learn some self-compassion. Mm. In, in other words, had your brain remained in its original plastic shape and, and structure as you went through these traumas, you would not have survived. Right. Right. The traumas actually built my brain the way it is. Right. It's, it's, it's just like any organism responds to its environment. My, my, I like to say I'm monster built. <laughs> hmm. That's what wired me. Uh -huh. So what, what were the first things that led you on the path to healing? You know, people, modalities, books, practices. Hmm. Uh, the very first thing was a, a newspaper announcement for a, um, survivor t-shirt workshop being hosted by a local rape crisis center in Virginia. Um, and it gave a description that people could come, people who had survived sexual violence could come in and decorate a t-shirt that would be used as part of this clothesline project. And the t-shirts were color coded for different types of um, uh, violence. And one of them was, I think it was white for childhood sexual abuse. And I went, Oh, that's what happened to me. Mm. I finally had a name for it. Uh, so um, after several months, I called the Rape Crisis Center and broke into tears when they answered the phone and they said, come on in. And I broke into tears again. And, and that's what started uh, my healing process for, uh, you know, the teen abuse. At that point, I hadn't remembered a lot of the earlier abuse. Uh, and that started coming as I started feeling safer, um, you know, going through the recovery process. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like two, two of the key aspects were the community and the normalization. Yes, the exactly. Mm -hmm. And those are two things that, you know, were absent up to that point. Yes. Uh, having a place where I could talk about it and people went, yeah, we know what that is. And we're really sorry it happened to you. And, and we really want to help you. And here's some things that you can do right now to feel better. Mm. Uh, and, and, and that is a big part of what's lacking in, you know, mainstream culture. Um, I think, you know, there's certainly pockets of, of culture where, where 
there are communities, but, uh, you know, bedroom, uh, America doesn't, doesn't have much community and, uh, people couldn't see what was going on and there was nobody safe enough for me to tell it to. Mm. Now you, you mentioned, um, neurofeedback and the, you know, the, the body being, it's a, they said it's a trauma somatic and not just mm-hmm. mental. Um, so what, what did you, uh, how did you lead your body into healing? How, how did the, how did the body get involved and not just sort of talking and drawing t-shirts and <laughs> well, actually drawing t-shirts is, is a type of somatic healing process. It, it oh. can be very helpful. Any kind of artwork can be very therapeutic. Um, I didn't have any sense of that at the time. Uh, I really only came into the uh, info about somatic work in the last few years. Um, I, uh, I uh, left my old life five years ago, um, quit my horrible job, gave away my stuff, kicked out my young adult kids and um, sold my house at a loss in order to go sail tall ships. Um, And I did that for a couple of years before uh, all the physical pain became too unbearable. Uh, It's it's a really, it's a wonderful life. I had so many great adventures and and met so many amazing, interesting people, but uh, it's also a very harsh life. Um, And the toll it was taking on my body made me have to stop and get an apartment. Um, Then uh, I got mental health insurance coverage for the first time almost two years ago. And I thought, great, I'm going to get some mental health care. Um, And I, at that point I had remembered a lot about, you know, what had happened when I was young. Uh, And I got on the trauma train. Um, They put me on a medication that uh, causes intense suicidal ideations uh, they wouldn't listen to me when I told them I was having them, and I thought it was the medication, uh, and I kept saying it, and they kept ignoring me until I ended up in the ER, and from there I was shuttled to the uh, mental hospital where I did not need to be, uh, mm. where they um, keep people until their insurance money runs out, whether they need to be there or not, and so I ended up being you know, re-traumatized over and over again through that process and feel like I still haven't recovered from that specific trauma this far down the, the road. Um, so it was after that that I really started uh, diving into uh, the somatic stuff because uh, I had to go deeper than what I was getting. Mm-hmm. And I could tell I wasn't going to get the help from the system that, you know, was supposed to help me. So it sounds like they were just experts at re-traumatizing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like the system, and really what I saw it's like the system is set up to uh, monetize trauma. And I hate to say that, but it really looks like it. Um, After I got out of the hospital, I found out that uh, Buzzfeed had done an investigative report on the parent company a few years before uh, and showed that they make their 30% profit by cutting staff and services and not providing any actual health care. And they, um, they um, hold people against their will, threaten them, and um, that's exactly what I saw. And yet a year and a half had, uh, had passed between that investigative report and my incarceration, and nobody was talking about it in my state at all. It's like it was all okay. How, how, you know, when a report comes out like this, how can, how can anybody let this keep happening? 
Mm. Well, is, is there something of a, you know, my word against yours, like the psychiatric experts and then a bunch of traumatized people? Like, like just, <laughs> just, just, just in terms of, um, you know, the, the PR spin on it, like one group just seems more authoritative. Well, of course, yeah, the, 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 the uh, hospital and the emergency department and the prescribing physician and the psychologists all have everything on their side. They have the law, they have the corporations, uh, they have the money, they have the power. I have me, that's all. Um, other people I talked to in the hospital gave me their contact info because once I realized what they were doing there, I'm like, okay, just call me Nellie fucking Bly. And I started taking notes and talking to people. Um, and, and uh, you know, someday I'll file a report when I'm ready. But um, uh, people told me they had very similar experiences to me. They thought they were going to get, you know, two or three days of, of even maybe like, you know, outpatient care and they were hoodwinked in there. Uh, not given their rights, their rights were violated, um, and and yeah, there's a stigma. Uh, I I talk about being in the mental hospital. I talk about PTSD. I have nothing to be ashamed of. But I know a lot of people go, yeah, she's crazy. She's she was in the mental hospital. You know, like mm. that that label kind of uh, uh, invalidates anything that you might want to say. If they, you know, it's a great way to just blow off every single concern. Right. I, rem I remember when I was seven years old that uh, the uh, vice presidential nom nominee for the Democratic Party had to drop out when it was discovered that he'd like seen a shrink. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't so. that sad? Well, and, and, and the, the really sad thing about, about the whole system is it is set up to pathologize uh, normal human responses to abnormal situations. Um, I forget who one of the one of the trauma experts only half joked, saying that if the DSM included developmental trauma, it would be a very thin volume because almost everything else would fall beneath it. Mm. Uh, and it seems to me like our entire culture sweeps this developmental trauma, which is mm. the number one health crisis in the world sweeps it under the rug. Mm. We don't and, want to talk about it. Yeah. And, and, and not to compare them, but to see a parallelism, I think the medical profession does exactly the same with all our, you know, chronic diseases that, that somehow diabetes or heart disease or autoimmune, these are normal reactions to abnormal foods and environments. Right. Yeah, and, and yes, and that's, of course, you know, a lot of it is tied to, to um, adverse childhood experiences. Um, you know, even, even for adverse childhood experiences, say, you know, you had a parent who spanked you a lot, you know, physical abuse. Uh, um, you had somebody in the house who went to jail. Uh, your parents screamed at each other a lot. Uh, you saw some domestic violence one time. That's four um, that can really have a tremendous effect on on those specific diseases, but the doctors don't talk about that, and they and they don't even understand when you bring it up. I don't know how many I've I've you know brought this up to, and and they look at me like I don't know what I'm talking about. Hmm. Yeah. Well, so now, now that we've sort of established your cred, um, how how do we you know th those of us who have trauma? which is to say, look in the mirror, and if there's a face looking back at you, you probably 
have some trauma. You're in a society that probably wasn't capable of allowing you to fully resolve it. And now we're in this, what you call the um, pre-traumatic state that's, that's slipping in through the physical distancing, through financial uncertainty, through future uncertainty, through the, the tremendous political and social fractures that we're seeing. What can we do if we feel ourselves starting to board the trauma train? <laughs> well, we need to really protect our nervous systems from the trauma, uh, which really is as simple as turning away from the things that make you feel janked up and turning toward the things that make you feel goodness inside you. Not good as in, I smashed that guy with my big words, but in, I feel good inside. Um, so uh, I'm going to make recommendations for things that I need to pay attention to myself. Really pay attention to what's going on in your internal state. When you start to feel that excitement about uh, you know, going to battle on Facebook again, stop for a second and say, is this really good for my nervous system? Is this the kind of thing I want to cultivate in myself? Because even though it can be really fun and exciting and you get that dopamine rush, um, it's wiring your nervous system for all the things that are bad for you, including that chronic disease at midlife followed by early death. Mm. So, so the thing that feels good in the moment, just like, you know, eating that, candy bar feels really good in the moment, right? It's a, it's a distraction. It's like, you know, rage makes me feel powerful and in control for a little while, but there's a hangover. Right. Yeah. We, we all need coping tools to deal with the pandemic stress. And it's a really good idea to consciously choose the ones that have little or no blowback, or you can actually choose ones that, that help you, advance rather than give you any blowback at all. Mm, like what? Uh, well, mindfulness is really important. I kind of touched on that there. Um, a lot of us are, are so caught up in thinking about what's going to happen next and making our plans and, and you know, how we're going to deal with our commute and what we're going to say to our boss when we get there or, uh, you know, how we're going to react next time Uncle Joe brings up that political thing again, um, that we don't stop and notice how we feel inside our bodies. Um, and that's a really important resource. So you can um, just take a moment and, and check in. Uh, notice, do you feel your feet on the floor? If you're sitting, do you feel your butt in the chair? If you can't feel those things, you're really uh, jacking up your nervous system by staying there. So you need to learn how to uh, downregulate. In fact, if I could teach everybody in the world one thing, it would be how to downregulate themselves. You want to try it? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, this is a, 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 a common exercise, but I've taken like all the things, all the elements that I like from different modalities. Uh, so your mileage will, will vary, but these are okay. all, every element that I put in uh, is known to help calm the nervous system and, and and uh, foster a sense of, of wellness and well-being and goodness inside. Okay. So, should, should I be sitting down or right now I'm at my standing desk? Um, whatever's comfortable for you. I'm going to sit. I'm going to sit. Okay. I'm going to drop the desk and grab the, uh, the little red ball behind me.
All right. Okay. So the first thing would be just to um, notice the space around you to sort of um, orient yourself in the room. This helps bring you down to the here and now because when you're present and embodied, you're usually not going to need to be in fight, flight, or freeze mode. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are two different things. So you're, you're orienting yourself to the room, noticing the surroundings. And, and as my Alexander Technique instructor friend Imogen likes to say, notice the support of your surroundings, which is a really nice, look at how you smiled when you just like thought that thought. You're like, yeah, that's kind of a nice thing. Hmm, meaning like I'm not like falling to the center of the earth. I'm not floating away. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I don't know about your place, but for me, this is the first place I've had where I chose things because of how they make me feel, of how I enjoy the way they look or the relationship I have with them or what I think about, you know, that was my grandmother's or whatever. Uh, and so I can look around my place and go, oh, that makes me happy. This makes me happy. I know the blacksmith who made those hooks, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I feel the, the support of the blacksmith's hooks in my mm. face because I know her. Um, and, and it's just a nice idea to think that your surroundings can be supportive of you, especially in the pandemic when we can't, you know, have that support of other people as often. So yeah, orient to the room, um, feel your feet on the floor, feel your sit bones on the ball. Um, and then we're going to do um, three um, smiling, uh, conscious breaths, smiling, mindful breaths. So we're going to breathe in to the count of four or five and then exhale to three. I'm sorry, hold and then exhale to three. Then inhale again to the same count and exhale again. But we're also going to add the uh, flower and the candle to this because I like them. So when we inhale, Imagine we have our favorite smelling flower and mm -hmm. we're going to breathe that in as we inhale. Okay. See how it feels to just imagine that to as fully as you can, that flowers in your hand. You're like, did that, that affected your state right there. Didn't it? Uh huh. I can yeah, see yeah. by your smile and you like your face relax more. You look happier. Mm. Our brain doesn't know the difference between smelling the real flower and imagining it. Mm -hmm. And so when we do something that brings us that feeling of goodness and pleasure, we're wiring ourselves for more of that. Mm. If we okay. focus on the dog do on, on uh, Facebook, we're wiring ourselves more for that. Mm. Okay. So that's the inhale. And then with the exhale, I like to imagine I'm blowing out a candle. So the flower turns into a candle and then, and yeah, if you make a sound like that, that's, that's even better yeah. neurologically. So we're going to do three flower inhales and candle exhales with the pause in between. So okay. I think I'll talk you through it. Um, and, and then I'll do it with you. We'll do it twice. How's that? So Sounds we can right. regulate. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. So smiling flower inhale to the count of six. Hold for three, blow that candle out for six, make the noise. And then when you're ready, another inhale with the flower to the count of six, hold for three, blow out the candle. 
And if you can pause at the end of that exhale uh, for a couple of seconds or however long you can do it without discomfort, um, that's really, really good for the nervous system. Let's see. That was twice, right? <laughs> PTSD brain. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Tell me to breathe again, please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I if, I, if I lose internet, <laughs> who's going to save me? <laughs> okay. You've got to get me back on track. Here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, have you, <laughs> you, know, you know the movie Office Space? I think I saw that once. <laughs> where, where he gets hypnotized and then the therapist drops dead. And so the, the hypnosis, like he, oh, yes. he, he no longer gives a shit about anything. And he becomes like yeah. the world's most chill guy. So that's just where my mind out. went. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't tell me to inhale again. <laughs> All right, got, we got one more and then we'll do it okay. together, right? Okay, yeah. All right. So flowers again for six seconds and then hold for three. Exhale for six. Hold for three. Now, we, we had a lot of laughter in there, so you didn't get the um, pure benefit of that exercise. Mm -hmm. But I have to say... Um, I have to put in a good word for laughter too. It's so important for our health, mm. especially these days. Um, I'm doing um, attending laughter yoga sessions online, which is wonderful. It sounds pretty weird and it is, but um, just uh, laughing with other people. And even though like we are through the computer, we're not co-regulating the same as if we were in the same room, but we're reading each other's energy in a very similar fashion and getting the benefit of that. So when you're laughing that way too, it builds bonds. It um, creates that open, um, curious uh, pro-social state that is our birthright. That's where we want to be. Um, and it feels to me like that, that laughing about, you know, your, your breath helped us achieve that state together. Um, I don't know if we need to do the breath again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I think I think the uh, the instructions are clear enough that folks listening at home, people used to listen on their commutes. I don't think people commute anymore. So no, hopefully they don't. <laughs> there are a couple other um, down regulating things I'd like to throw in there too. When oh, I do please. this myself, um, one thing is if you can touch yourself in a way that crosses your midline. I like to do yeah. it with my hands because it's harder to do with my feet. Um, that helps, yeah. and you can also. Um, Stroke your upper arms as in whatever way makes you feel relaxed and, and soothing. I find for me, I just need it to be like really slow and light mm. and not just like, just like I can almost feel the tension is rolling out of myself when I do that. And, mm. and so know, the, vi the visual here is sort of like hugging, hugging ourselves across the front mm -hmm. and, and then, then just... Stroking slow. up and down. Yeah. Slow. Usually I think slow. looks like you're going pretty slow too. So, mm -hmm. but whatever, yeah. whatever helps you feel that sense of calm and goodness inside. And that's really what we need to, to orient ourselves toward. We need to pay attention to what's going on in our heads and in our bodies and orient ourselves to the things that make us feel good and whole and open and curious and um, connected. Um, mm -hmm. When we get into uh 
traumatic stress, we tend to uh, be protective and reactive and, and close ourselves off from each other. Um, and that's part of the process of going down the trauma train line. We, we are neurologically wired to um, be with each other and co-regulate and help each other heal. Mm. And um, yeah, the, I, you know, the, the sort of holding myself and the breathing, like they, they don't feel like they require a lot of effort or struggle or bravery. Like when I think about facing trauma, I think about going into pain, suffering, like re-experiencing it in a safe place. And there, you know, I think there is that. But this, but this invitation, first of all, if you're not yet on the trauma train, this can keep you off. It's right. it's one of the many things that can help keep you off. Yeah. Um, and and uh, well, first I want to say, yes, um, we think of trauma as you have to go re-experience it all. Um, there are modalities where you don't have to remember anything. Um, unfortunately, mm -hmm. they don't work for me. I have to know what happened. Um, but uh, and it may be partly due to the magnitude of, you know, the trauma mm -hmm. I experienced. But um, there are, you don't have to remember there's. Um, uh, several different types like the um, uh, brain spotting and uh, and even Alexander technique I use that a lot it's not it's not therapy um, and um, it's great that it's not therapy but it's very therapeutic um, I keep telling my friend Imogen yeah this stuff's really in line with neurobiology of, of um, healing trauma and interpersonal neurobiology uh, because it's so gentle um, and universal and uh, it's very subtle but very powerful um, and uh, I find I don't have to think about my trauma but if I am dealing with um, some aspect of it I can use the Alexander to help me titrate that as well. Mm. Mm. And what, what else if, if people are listening and they're wondering where to go because all they've seen is like the cognitive stuff that just makes them feel worse about had their dysfunctional thinking. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, actually, if you have a lot of trauma, cognitive isn't going to help you very much. Um, it, it, it will, it can actually uh, re-traumatize you. Um, so uh, it's not a good idea to go there first if you know you have a lot of trauma. Yeah. If you're yeah, not sure, you know, give it a try. Um, it works really well for a lot of people. Um, I, think I, about, I think about uh, cognitive behavioral therapy as like a salesperson trying to sell to the CEO. And mm. if, if you can get in to sit down and talk to the CEO and the CEO gives you their attention, then it's perfect. Yes. But if there's a gatekeeper who's, who's <laughs> keeping you out, then it's, 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 it's just going to frustrate everybody. Yeah, that's a good point. I actually, I have a, um, a painting I'll show you real quick of, um, this, for me, this is uh, why we need uh, trauma-informed care. So, mm. The, the guy over there on the side is trying to sell me. He's a salesman mm. trying to sell me the CBT uh, mm. while the monster's chewing me to bits. And, and, the, and, the, and the, the, um, the conversation bubble is, have you thought about how you can make better choices? Yeah. He can't even see the monsters chewing me up because he's not trauma aware, not mm -hmm. trained. So he thinks that, uh, by telling me I should make, I could make better choices. That's going to fix what's wrong with me. Right. Um, so we talked about 
<clears throat> psychedelic uh, assisted psychotherapy. We've talked about doing it yourself, but uh, mind-body awareness through the, the breathing and the mm -hmm. uh, bilateral touching. Mm -hmm. um, other things? Um, one of the things that really helped me with learning to uh, get into my body uh, was um, Eckhart Tolle's um, uh, Gateways to Now the gateway uh, to the inner body, I think it's called. Um, he has such a wonderful, calming, soothing voice. And um, it, it just felt very comforting to me and, and non-threatening. It was so gentle. Mm. But even then, I had to do it just in little bits. It's mm. really important to listen to your instincts about how much you can take and, and not push it. I, I know because I'm the pushy type. I'm like, got to get through this, got to get through this. But now I understand when... You know, if I'm if I'm listening to something like that and I uh, start to feel really uncomfortable, I know it's time to stop and and you know do something different. There's no point in in pushing through. My I, mm -hmm. I'm seeing a somatic experiencing therapist right now, and she says, yeah, the the uh, slow way is the fast way when it comes to trauma, and I mm -hmm. still have trouble believing it, but now. That I've been working mm -hmm. with her for about six months. I can really understand that. Um, the, well, dance it, movement therapy is a wonderful modality. Dance, uh, dance movement, dance movement therapy. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, uh, it's, it can be really fun too. For me, um, I, I had sessions with uh, a woman named Orit Krut and I'm sorry, Orit Krug and she, she does video only, which seemed weird at first to do therapy by video, especially dance movement. But it was amazing how much we could even experiment with like, like, you know, how close I am to you versus how far and what's comfortable. Uh, and, and for me, the video added a layer of safety. But you know, even if you don't want to go into therapy, Alexander technique is wonderful. Um, uh, uh, um, drum circles, um, uh, laughter yoga, um, anything that gets you moving uh, in unison with other people in community with other people. Uh, especially if you can make eye contact. Now, of course, all this stuff is really difficult with the um, physical distancing we need to do, but it, it's not impossible. Mm -hmm. We see people getting together, you know, meeting out in spaces, you know, with enough room for the distancing. Yeah. And I want to follow up when you talked about, you know, Eckhart Tolle and the gateway to the inner body and the fact that you had to kind of take it at your own pace I think, I think, you know, the, the spiritual world can be a very healing world for people with trauma. It can also be very dangerous, right? Because you, you can't give yourself over to a guru. Right? No. <laughs> and, and, and there's a lot of spirituality that tells the story that you manifested everything. Right. And that's something I keep bumping up against and punching back at because it, it, it's just so awful. There's a spiritual bypass. Uh, you know, so many times people said, well, just let it go or, you know, karma's a bitch or, or whatever. Uh, and using their, their version of spirituality basically to do to me what my family did, which was to blame me for what happened to me when I was a kid and, and to blame me for the way that I was wired by the environment I was wired in. Um, so I, I talk back to that a lot. I have my own spirituality. I call it um, uh, eclectic experientialism. <laughs> or sometimes I say I'm a Frisbee Farian. Uh, we believe that when you die, uh, your soul gets stuck on the roof and then you get stoned. 
(laughs) (laughs) But um, mostly I take, you know, I borrow from different, different beliefs that, that feel right to me. Uh, And uh, so I, and I had to, because uh, growing up and hearing about this, you know, grandfather in the sky that meets out uh, rewards and punishments uh, uh, convinced me that I was God's cosmic punching clown. Uh, you can see him back here. Um, uh, that, you know, uh, that I was put here only for God's amusement uh, to, you know, beat me up and take things away from me and laugh at me. And that's just such a, a brutal uh, dogma uh, Mm. And and I think it's a natural uh, response to that kind of dogma, the, you know, the one uh, meeting out the rewards and punishment. Uh, so uh, I think a lot of uh, Buddhism actually is really good for um, people with developmental trauma and, and, and it not necessarily even the spiritual, but, you know, the, the, the philosophical practice of it can be really, really calming and soothing for somebody who's been through too much. Mm. And one, one final question. So, you know, you've, you've done a lot of work, obviously, on yourself, um, advocating and educating others. And, you know, you, you've referred several times to like, oh, my PTSD brain, and I'm still working on things. Like, the, there's no romantic idea of like a cure here that like, you're ever, you know, the, you'll, it'll be like it never happened. Right? No, no. Even if say suddenly, you know, one of those uh, three month protocols was, uh, was available to me immediately at no cost um, with no, no negative blowback. And there's no way that it could undo, you know, what was done and all the things that I missed out on uh, because of it. Uh, um and I don't have any illusion that there is going to be any miracle. I've, I've really, I've tried to find them and they're not there. Um, but the miracle really for me is neuroplasticity. Uh, the neurobiology of fear uh, can destroy us unless we know if we understand even a little bit of it, we can use it to help us heal. And um, everybody has an innate healing capability. Uh, and, and really the main thing is to, you know, find what works for you. There's so many options out there. And especially now, oh my gosh, you get online and you can find, you know, free trauma summit <laughs> all over the place or, or, you know, resiliency summit and, you know, sign up for them for free and watch, watch just one. Uh, find a, a find a description of a practitioner you like or the, their class course they like listen to that one thing and then maybe go to their website and see if there's some you know more free info there a lot of times there are find them on facebook um uh my my uh my um deep process psychologist david bedrick is on facebook and he gives stuff away all the time he does these wonderful um uh um uh face what do they call it? Facebook live um, videos on um, Mm -hmm. various aspects of healing and dreaming. And, and uh, he has uh, classes and and lots of posts, just, you know, there's so many people out there that are offering free support right now that anybody could find something that, that speaks to them and whatever it is, go for that. And if it doesn't work out, find something else that speaks to you. Keep trying until you find what, what works for you. And, and um, really, if you can find one thing 
that you can sprinkle throughout your day. That's one of the things I love about Alexander Technique. I can apply it to washing my hands or driving the car or, oh, I just notice I'm tense, so I'm going to, you know, just take a moment to, to do the cycle. Um, and you can incorporate it throughout your day, and that's how you rebuild a new nervous system, and, and that's my hope. Mm, nice. <laughs> just, you know, to tie it into a a more common theme of this podcast, which is sort of nutrition and health and health behaviors, that if, if people find themselves inexplicably binging or sabotaging their, their health behaviors and they've tried everything and nothing has worked, I would say that probably an unresolved trauma is the missing piece here. I'd say it's really likely. Um, uh, when I see somebody who's, who's very overweight, um, very heavy, um, and, and looks unhappy, I know in my heart that they have some kind of, you know, developmental trauma that they haven't had the resources to face. And that's the thing. One of the things we really have to do is be so kind to ourselves because we, we do have the innate uh, ability to heal and we have the drive to heal but in order to do that, we have to have the safe space to do it. That's number one. If you don't feel safe in your home environment or uh, in your life in general, or you don't have, you know, a safe confidant or whatever it is to do the processing, you can't move forward. And, and we all naturally heal when we have the resources. So we can't blame ourselves for not healing, you know, 20 years ago. God, if I could have done this 20 years ago. I didn't have the resources. I just have them now. And mm -hmm. I have to say, there's been no better time to have PTSD. <laughs> there are so many great resources out there. Mm. Yeah. And it seems, it seems like we can heal each other. That we don't, you don't have to find the person who is completely healed. That if you, if you have the intention and we, we start to understand these dynamics and we come together we can weave together a community that's somehow, you know, like a, a meta organism that can be healed before each of us individually is healed. You know, I used to think that stuff was pretty wackadoodle, but now I'm, um, the more I understand interpersonal neurobiology, the more I recognize that that's probably true. Um, especially the part about, you know, being able to heal each other. Um, mm what what a, a traumatized person needs most is compassionate witnessing from another human being. And like you said, sometimes it's really hard to get if your trauma is so awful and the people around you uh, don't have the tolerance for it. But, you know, just reaching out to somebody and saying, I don't understand what happened to you, but I can tell it's really bad and I'm sorry and I wish I could fix that for you. Right there, that's a little bit of healing, and and it doesn't take much effort to do that for somebody else. Mm, yeah, I remember a book that was very important to me. I want to say thirty years ago, pretty much, uh, was called "How Can I Help" by Ramdas and Paul Gorman. Mm. And the last chapter, I remember the title of the last chapter was called "Walking Each Other Home," mm. which uh, that's that's sort of the metaphor. I love, I love his saying about that. We're all walking each other home. And I, I'd say that's probably like the core of my spiritual belief, you know, that we're here to help each other and help each other heal and connect with each other and have a shared ex positive experience. And that's part of our birthright. And that's part of the reason the staying off the trauma train is so important because 
if you're on the trauma train, you're robbed of all that stuff. Not completely and not forever, but you're robbed of a lot of it. And, and nobody deserves that. Right. Well, Shay, I want to thank you so much for your openness, your vulnerability, for all the work you have done, both intellectually and experientially. And I know that there are people listening to this who will begin to find healing just from the education and hopefully the, the resources. And I'll put, I'll put the links and I'll, I'll get with you after, afterwards via email to get uh, links to uh, some of the stuff we talked about so people can, can follow up and, uh, and find their own paths to healing. So again, thank you for all you do and for taking the time today. Oh, thank you, Howard. It's been my pleasure. All right. Be well. Thank you. You too. All right. I hope you found that valuable. I certainly got a lot out of that breathing exercise, even in the moment. And from having repeated it a few times, definitely helps. And lots of breath work and various body modalities of just paying attention to our bodies, getting in touch with them, listening to the signals that they're constantly sending us. That's one of the main keys to healing whatever specific modality we choose. So I want to tell you that uh, Shay emailed me after our conversation with a whole bunch of links to YouTube videos, videos, YouTube videos, uh, YouTube videos, uh, articles, various uh, helpful resources. And there's about a dozen of them. And you can find them all at the at the show notes for today's episode, which is plantyourself.com slash four zero nine. Uh, if you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so in a whole bunch of ways. Cheapest, freest way is to leave a review wherever you get your podcast, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or whatever else. Then um, leave a little review that helps other people find us and find out about the show. If you would like to become a patron of Plant Yourself and help out, you know that every episode is free to the world. And I don't do any advertising. So basically, it's me and whoever else wants to help to uh, fund and support the show. If you would like to be one of those people, elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder with us, you can make a contribution over at plantyourself.com slash gift, either a one time via PayPal or becoming an ongoing monthly sustainer via Patreon. So garden news yesterday, I spent pretty much all day Memorial Day in the garden uh, we got some uh, Cherokee Trail of Tears black beans into the ground. It's a sad name and a delicious and very productive bean down here in North Carolina. And also got some uh, pickling cucumbers. And the, one of the happiest things is that I started a compost pile about 18 months ago and it turned into compost. <laughs> it's amazing. And this is like the richest, darkest, heaviest, loamiest soil you've ever seen. So I've been carting it from the compost pile, which I don't know why I put it so far away from the garden, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. I guess it, doesn't, it smells bad, so I wanted it far from the house. But onto the various garden beds, and things are just so happy. So a lot of good stuff happening. And we're about, oh, two or three weeks away from the blueberry harvest if the birds stay away. So a lot of good stuff happening in the garden it's nice because when we came back from South Africa, you know, in the midst of the uh, early panic of the pandemic, thinking there wasn't going to be food on the shelves, like we really threw ourselves into production. And now we're starting to see some of the fruits of that. Things are popping up. Um, so nothing, nothing like seeing things you put in the ground grow and thrive. And of course, if we're there's still, you know, food, we still have a supply chain. 
we'll be using what we can use and um, spreading the rest around the community in ways that uh, that feel good, whether uh, selling or bartering or donating to food pantries and food banks. In running news, I did a good one on the I can't remember what day, but it was a maybe a Saturday. It was a ten miler at a nine thirty pace. So it was nice to see that I still have that in me. And it happened because I was running, did five miles about a 10 minute pace. And then I ran into my buddy who runs without a watch and with like 20 year old sneakers and happily does an 830 pace while chatting. And so I just wanted to keep up with him for another five miles, which got me to about a 930 average. So things are coming back. Also to support our local uh, running store, they had a uh, pay what you can sale for a bunch of stuff. I got a massage gun, which is pretty impressive. It was uh, the trigger point model, not the one of the, the big expensive ones, not the Hyper Ice or the Theragun. It was a smaller, cheaper one with uh, just one head, no attachments, but still packs a wallop. I recommend it if you uh, have a couple hundred bucks and you're tired of feeling sore and achy every time you exercise. And that wasn't an advertisement. I get no money if you buy it or not. So uh, let's talk about thanks. Let's bring up uh, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace, the theme music for the show once again. And I'll remind you that that is written and performed by Will Reidenauer, who is a kora player. Kora is a West African instrument. And if you go to willreidenauer.com, that's R-I-D-E-N-O-U-R, will, R-I-D-E-N-O-U-R.com, you can find more of his music and see if he's playing any... Well, I don't know if anyone's playing any local shows, but maybe he's online. I don't know. I haven't checked. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons like Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Morrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barres, Christine Nielsen, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jan Volkanovsky, David Bysdeck, Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josinas, Zara Durkis, Ramos, Turkis, Kelly, Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Fronsick, Tina Benham, Gila Sayre, David Dominic, Blair Cyber, Jerome Avizov, Gio and Carol Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruthann Thunderberg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, Inscrutable Harry R, Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, The Plant Happy Organs, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marin Blum, Teresa Coble, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzanwak, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orkoski, Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Mirani, Karen and Joe Krabdy, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell. Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosalind McAteen, Dan McCorney, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Karts, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Bashan, Sheldon, Nancy Sheldon, sorry about that, Lindsay Bashar, Gunn Marie Hagen, Tracy Gullish, Laura Heaton. Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Stavage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owens, and Sagar Nayak for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends. Mm-hmm.